by Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and continuing from my first video of the new year in which I discussed a couple of fan films related to Turin, I'm going to be talking about Turin again in this video, and it's from a suggestion from a member of my Discord, and it's, he goes by the handle Dower1234, and his suggestion was, look at the interaction between Turin and the sword Gurthang at the very end of the story where Gurthang apparently speaks and analyze whether this actually happens or whether it's all in Turin's mind. And he wanted to focus mainly on the idea that in that little speech that the sword gives, it refers to Beleg as its master and whether this is really Turin thinking of Beleg as his master in some sense. And he mentioned a whole bunch of cases where the word master or masterless or, you know, something like that is used in the story that would support the idea that Beleg could be considered Turin's master. But I actually don't want to focus primarily on that point because I don't think that it's very... I don't think it's very instructive in terms of answering the question at the end of the day. And I don't think really that, especially by that point in the story, Turin would have considered Beleg his master. He might have considered him that at the very early stages when he first started making war with the elves of Doriath at the, on the borders of Doriath against the encouraging, incurring... Bleh, I can't use my words right. <clears throat> against the orcs that were trying to make incursions on Doriath. But even there, Turin is kind of always his own guy, and he's just doing things that he wants to do. He might have learned a lot from Beleg, and he might have kind of seen him as his captain in a sense, but master I don't think is the right word. And so I, I don't really think that the use of that term really makes much difference, especially because... Beleg was actually the master of the sword at one point, although there is some little bit of evidence to suggest that maybe that word, as used by the sword, is maybe a little disingenuous. So I will talk about that a little bit. But what I really want to focus on is the idea of just the ambiguity of the story as a whole. And this is something I've talked about before, where... In Turin's story, you're often left with the option to take things that happen in one of two ways, and the author, the narrator, whatever, doesn't really force you into one or the other. Especially when it comes to Turin, his curse, and whether he's acting in terms of free will, or the curse is just imposing things on him. Now... I've given my opinion in a previous video, and I think that the ultimately this, the evidence comes down a little more heavily on the side of Turin is just screwing up, and he, he blames the curse a lot, but the curse really just takes occasion to basically take advantage of his mess-ups. And, you know, when he does something stupid, the curse comes back to bite him, and thereby manages to make things even worse. 
But the curse by itself doesn't make his life hard. He does plenty of that on his own. Um, but nevertheless, the narrative does not force you into that conclusion. It's not really clear. And there's other ambiguities in the story as well, such that there's always a little bit of a tug-of-war between certain elements and certain other elements where it leaves you in a position of, well, is it this or is it that? And this is one of the brilliant things about the Turin story is that you can almost always find two ways to take almost anything that happens in it. And that ambiguity is so rich and it leaves you with so many ways of interpreting the story that you can make it mean so many different things and either way you take it, there's kind of an important lesson to learn. So even with Turin's curse, for example, the, the curse that Morgoth says that he puts on Hurin and his family, the if the curse is doing all the work, it does teach a certain lesson, which is Morgoth may not be all-powerful, but he's not to be trifled with. On the flip side, if it's really Turin just screwing up a lot, and then, you know, the curse just kind of takes advantage of that when he does it, it's you know, make better decisions, you dummy. <laughs> and then you won't be in this position because one of the things that I think that I've talked about in a previous video that Turin does a lot of is that he keeps revealing himself because he just cannot help but put himself in a position where he's going to become known. And that's partially because he just has this extreme urge to go out and make war against Morgoth to try to do things that are going to make it easier for his family to get, you know, out of Hithlum, things like that. And it's, he just cannot restrain himself, or will not restrain himself, and because he won't, and because he keeps putting himself out there, the curse keeps finding him. And by the curse, I mean, really, Morgoth keeps finding him, and using his, you know, different tools, whatever those are, to find ways to hurt Turin, whether that be Glaurung sacking Nargothrond, or whether that be, you know, just having a huge horde of orcs attack, you know, Mim's dwelling on Amonruth. Uh, whatever it is, Morgoth is going to find him because Turin keeps revealing himself. So there's this constant tension of, you can see it either of two ways, but both ways are you know, teach a valuable lesson, whichever way you go. So, this is the kind of tension that happens in the Turin Turumbar story, and which allow for this last little speech that Turin and Gurthong have to be seen, likewise, in a very ambiguous light. So I want to look at some of the key things that happen about the sword and whatnot that give us some ideas about why this is so ambiguous. Because if you just read the narrative flat, it just says a cold voice rang out from the sword. Okay, if we take that at face value, the sword talks, right? But because everything else in the story can be seen in one of two ways, you now have to ask yourself, but did it really? Or is this Turin's imagination in his final insanity? Because, let's face it, after what happened to Turin at the very end of the story, he very well could have completely cracked and lost it. And that's going to be one of the key things that I look at. So let's take a look, and we're going to start with 
the speech of Turin and Gurthong. And then we're going to go back and look at some other things to kind of give us some idea of what might be happening in this scene. Before we go on, I did want to point out, by the way, that I am wearing the other new Tolkien-related shirt that I got this Christmas. Not all those who wonder are lost. Very nice. Uh, but here's, here's the final speech of Turin and Gurthong's reply. Turin says, Hail, Gurthong, no lord or loyalty dost thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee. From no blood wilt thou shrink. Wilt thou therefore take Turin to Rumbar? Wilt thou slay me swiftly? And from the blade rang a cold voice in answer, Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, that so I may forget the blood of Beleg my master, and the blood of Brondir slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. So, here we have this interaction between Turin and the sword, and you... The thing is, the sword has never spoken before, at least not that we get in the narrative, and so one wonders to what degree Turin himself is surprised in this moment. And he clearly has intentions of killing himself because he's asking the sword, will you kill me? And as I mentioned in my previous video about the the two fan films, one of the interesting things here is that Turin killing himself on Gurthon here is actually kind of a fulfillment of this idea that anything that the sword cuts, it'll kill. And, of course, Turin does get cut earlier because when Beleg is trying to release him from the bonds that the orcs had him in after capturing him at Mim's dwelling, it cuts him. But he doesn't die there, of course. But now he's going to die by that sword. It's like, sooner or later, the sword's going to get you if it ever cuts you. So, it's kind of interesting that that ends up being kind of a fulfillment, not so much of a prophecy, but kind of like a this is just the way this thing works. It's the fate of this sword that this is how it goes. So it's really interesting that that happens, but also, you know, you, you got to wonder, like I said, how surprised is Turin himself in this moment? And if the sword had not replied, would he actually have gone through with it? Would, it? would he really have killed himself? Like if he just asked the sword, will you kill me? And then he got no reply, would he have just kind of stared at it and been like, man, my life sucks, but I can't take it, you know, I can't take my own life. Or would he have at least hesitated long enough for Mobloon and the other elves to catch up and maybe stop him? But, you know, in the frame of mind that he's in, the fact that the sword actually talks to him, you know, in, in, a, in a state of mind like that, where you're already contemplating suicide, and then the sword says, yeah, you're a bad dude, you killed Beleg, and then you killed Brondir, so yeah, I'll kill you too, because you deserve it, pal. I mean, that would push you over the edge, if you're already, you know, pretty much there. So, there's a, there's a strong hint here already, just on the terms of this conversation, if you want to call it that, of the sword is kind of his own conscience telling him, you deserve to die because you're a bad dude. And so that already raises the possibility of, is this just his conscience talking back to him, or is it the sword talking back to him? Now, I want to address that whole master thing, because here, Turin does say, no lord or loyalty dost thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee. 
And so that does raise a little bit of ambiguity, perhaps, about whether you could call Beleg truly the sword's master. The sword, if it is the sword, says, yeah, because you, you know, shed the blood of Beleg, my master. And so when Turin says, you know no lord or loyalty besides the hand that wields you, that's a rather interesting thing to say in this context, because it, it kind of implies that while Beleg had the sword, yes, it was his master. But Turin is also saying, once somebody doesn't have his hand on you and he's not wielding you, you don't care. You'll just kill anything. The irony, of course, in that statement is the sword does seem to care because it it says back to Turin, yeah, you killed Beleg unjustly and you certainly killed Brondir unjustly. And so, therefore, I will kill you because you deserve it. So, Turin is saying, you don't care who you kill. And the sword seems to be saying back, no, I kind of care. And there's a real irony and ambiguity here because of how this sword enters the story in the Silmarillion. And let me just say here, I am primarily using the Silmarillion version of the Turin Turumbar story because that is the baseline that most people are going to be familiar with. The Children of Hurin version adds some other stuff that I think could play into this, and I'll, I'll probably mention a couple of those things later. But I'm primarily basing my stuff off of the Silmarillion version. So, the interesting thing is, when the sword originally enters the story, of course it's known as Anglachel, not Gorthang. Turin will later rename it after it's kind of re-sharpened, reforged, after he kills Beleg with it. But it's given to Beleg by Thingol when Beleg wants to go and look for Turin and he's like, I need a sword. And Thingol says, you know, take whatever you want from my armory and he picks this one. And it was made by Aeol the Dark Elf, who is the father of Maeglin, who ends up being the traitor who brings down Gondolin much later. Well, not much later, I guess. But So it's made by this guy who is kind of a bad dude on his on his own not you know not horribly bad but yeah kind of horribly bad at the end <laughs> he he gets so possessive of his, of his own family that he'd rather kill them than let them go anywhere so Aeol's a bad dude he makes this sword and a, a sister sword he makes two swords out of a piece of iron or some kind of ore that fell out of the sky in a meteorite and that's why the swords are black. They're made of a metal that don't know exactly what they are. And he makes this, and he has to give one of them, Anglachel, to Thingol as kind of a payment for being allowed to live in Non-Elmoth, which is where Arathel meets him, and he kind of, not coerces, but semi-coerces her into being his wife and all that crazy stuff. So Aeol's a bad dude, and when... Thingol gives the sword to Beleg at his request. Melian has a few words to say about that. But as Thingol turned the hilt of Anglachel towards Beleg, Melian looked at the blade and she said, There is malice in this sword. The dark heart of the smith still dwells in it. It will not love the hand it serves. Neither will it abide with you long. Now, Melian, of course, is probably bar none, the smartest person in the entire Silmarillion, and nobody ever listens to her, because Beleg says, nevertheless, I'll take it. <laughs> and 
what she says comes true because it doesn't abide with him for long because he manages to get killed by by Turin. So the interesting here thing here though is that when Melian says this, she says the dark heart of the smith still dwells in it and there is malice in it and there is it will not love the hand that it that wields it. So this ties back into that whole conversation that Turin has with the sword, if we want to call it a conversation. Because what he says is, no lord or loyalty have you, save the hand that wields you. So he's saying you have loyalty to the hand that wields you. Melian says it will not love the hand that wields it. Now, love and loyalty are two different things, admittedly, but Melian's statement seems to be cutting in the exact opposite direction of what Turin says about the sword. And so when she says this, it implies that it doesn't actually have any loyalty or it doesn't care about who wields it. The sword just, it's got malice in it. And these two things, the malice and the lack of love, both add to this ambiguity that we have going. Because... On the one hand, the sword, when it replies to Turin, implies that it has a sense of justice and that the reason it's willing to take Turin's life is because he did evil things in taking the lives of Beleg and Brondir, or at least evil in the case of Brondir. The sword doesn't actually accuse him of doing anything evil with Beleg. It does say the killing of Brondir is unjust, but for Beleg, it just kind of says, because you took the blood of my master, you know, I'll take yours too. But Brondir, it says, slain unjustly. And therefore, it seems like it has some kind of sense of, A, loyalty to Beleg, and B, sense of justice when it comes to Brondir. Melian's statement seems to cut against both of those. Because she says that it will not love the hand that wields it, legs, and also that it has malice. So why would it care about justice? So Turin, on the one hand, is accusing it of being, you know, not really having any loyalty except to the hand that wields it, and Melian cuts against that. But Turin also seems to accuse it of, you know, you just don't care, you'll take anything, and the sword seems to imply that, no, I actually do kind of care, I care about justice, and you killed Brondir unjustly. Melian cuts against that. So Melian kind of contradicts both Turin and the sword in this thing. And because she also says, you know, it won't love the hand that wields it, that kind of cuts against the idea that the sword would look at Beleg as its master. And also... You know, it would, the idea that Turin would say that, you know, you have loyalty to the hand that wields you. Melian is contradicting kind of both of those things in that one statement. And of all three of them, Melian, Turin, and the sword, my inclination would be to believe Melian first (laughs) before the other two. And so if the sword has no love for the thing that wields it, why would it care that it took Beleg's? life just because it was his master, it wouldn't. And so that does bring in this idea that maybe when the sword says, Beleg, my master, it really is kind of Turin 
talking to himself rather than the sword doing it. Because based on what Melian tells us about the sword, the sword shouldn't care, really. The sword shouldn't care about either Beleg dying, just because it was his master, because it has no love for the hand that wields it. But also it shouldn't care about Brondir being slain unjustly because there's malice in the sword. The malice of the sword means it's got a bad thing, bad intent, bad motive, bad whatever. And I mean, it's, it's hard to say any of these things about a sword because swords don't have intent. They don't have, like, what does she even mean by this, right? I mean, there's this whole idea of the sword being malice, having malice, but how does that work? The sword doesn't seem to have any real agency in the story. It just is a sword, and bad things happen regarding the sword. Like I said, whoever it cuts, it will kill, ultimately, which turns out to be true because Durin dies. But it also just seems to have bad luck associated with it, but not in like a way that the sword is causing anything. It's just one of those, you know, semi-magical items that just you shouldn't mess with because it does bad stuff, or bad stuff happens around it, one way or the other. So, Melian's statement does kind of play into this whole master thing, because it does create that ambiguity, because now we've got Turin saying, you're not loyal to anybody except the hand that wields you. And the sword kind of seems to go along with that, saying, Beleg, my master. So it's like it cares that Beleg was its master when it killed him, and it's like, that's not really right. Even though you didn't necessarily do it out of malice or anything yourself, still shouldn't have happened, so yeah, I'll take your life. Melian undercuts both of those. She's like, it doesn't love the hand that wields it. It really just, it's bad. So this idea of the master thing it's like the sword is lying. If we take Melian to be true, the sword is probably lying. Or, if the sword is not lying, then it's actually Turin talking to himself through the sword, or hearing him, his own conscience through the sword because of his madness. So that does actually play in. Now, I don't think any of the other references to the word master anywhere in the story make that big of a difference, and that's why I said I didn't really want to focus on this element so much. But there is this particular element that I think really does lead to the ambiguity. Now, the other things in the story that really give us that sense of ambiguity are Turin's personality and his entire character arc, and especially this the last little bit. And here's where I am going to bring in the Children of Hurin version, because the Silmarillion cuts out a lot of the stuff that is in the Children of Hurin that really kind of helps here. Because in the Silmarillion version, we get a very short account of Mablung meeting Turin after he's already killed Brondir, telling him that Neonor had escaped and that she fled from, from them and went north and they've been searching for her, and he realizes that Glaurung is correct, that he in fact did marry his own sister, well, Brondir was correct because he heard Glaurung. Turin didn't hear Glaurung say it, but Brondir did, and he reported it to Turin. And that, therefore, he has killed Brondir unjustly. And that's when he decides, you know what? I need to die. Um, so that's, that's about all we get. But in the Children of Hurin version of the story, 
with the more detail in all this, we get a little bit more stuff. Whenever Mobloom tells him, yeah, your sister was in Doriath, and we went and looked at Nargothrond, and you weren't there, there was Glaurung, and he made her, you know, kind of lose whatever, and then she escaped. Turin tries to play a gambit for his own psychological health, and because he's never met Neonor that he knows of. He, she was born after he left Hithlum. He tries one last desperate gambit to prove himself right and that he didn't really kill Brondir for the wrong reasons. And he says something along the lines of, oh yeah, I remember she was brown as a nut and had dark hair and all this. And Moblin's like, no, she was actually fair-skinned and had golden hair, which of course is what Ninial, who that's how she, he's known her the whole time, that's what she looks like. And that's exactly what he was hoping not to hear, because Turin now knows, oh shoot, that really was her. <laughs> uh, so, when Moblung contradicts this gambit, where Turin is desperately hoping that he really didn't marry his own sister. When he when he finds this out, and Mobloom tells him, "No, actually, that's not what she looked like at all. She looked like basically your dad, you know, golden haired and fair skin." That's when it finally gets him, and he he's I don't remember exactly what he says, but he goes kind of nuts, and he goes a little bit nuts in the Silmarillion too. He starts cursing Doriath and curses Mobloom. But it gets a little more involved in the children of Hurin's story, and then he just runs off, and that's when he finally has this conversation with the sword and kills himself. So his his wild behavior and his desperation really enhance the idea here at the end that what happens when he realizes what he's done finally just cracks him. He's done. He's lost it completely you don't get as much of a sense of that in the Silmarillion because he doesn't have that last desperate gambit of trying to prove that it's not Neonor that he married. And he doesn't have, you know, quite that, it's that same level of he's really just clawing for anything he can get to, to to save himself. It does have a lot of the same wording, like, you know, he feels the steps of doom kind of coming for him at last, like it's just finally caught up with him and it's just over. But it doesn't have quite the same impact. So when you include that in there, it really strengthens the sense that once he, you know, he tries this one last attempt to kind of climb out of the hole that he's dug for himself, or... or hoping that he hasn't dug for himself and then he realizes he's at the bottom of an abyss. It's just, he cracks. You know, that that's one way you could interpret that. Another interesting thing about the Children of Hurin version is you have the character of Nellus. And I think this is not hugely important, but mildly important. Nellus is a an elf maiden that he befriends in Doriath in his youth and who ultimately is the one who saves him from conviction, if we want to call it that, of killing Cyrus because she actually witnessed the thing and, and saw Cyrus attack him unawares and that when Turin gets him running and he ends up running off a cliff and well not runs off a cliff but tries to jump over a chasm he you know it kind of Cyrus's own fault Turin wouldn't have actually forced him into that 
So she is the one whose testimony ends up saving him. But the interesting thing about it is when Beleg finally catches up to Turin with the outlaws, he tells him, oh, by the way, Nellis testified. She saw what happened. She got you off. And therefore, Thingol has decided that you're not really at fault and has pardoned you. Turin's like, Nellis? Who are you talking about? And Beleg's response is, how do you not know? You spent lots of time with her. And he's, he says something along the lines of, that seems like forever ago. Bearing in mind here that Turin at this point is under 30. I mean, he couldn't have forgotten that much just because of age. Turin is a very young guy, even when he dies. So, there is already hints in the Children of Hurin's story that there's something not quite right about Turin's mind. Like, it, it's... Either it's just all of the crazy pressures that he is under, many of which are of his own doing, just lead him to focus very, very narrowly on a handful of things, and anything that isn't relevant to that in the moment just isn't there. Or there's something broken about him. And so you already have this hint way earlier in the story in the Children of Hurin version that he's not a completely stable individual. You already know that he's not a very wise and prudent individual because of the things that he does. But this is a hint that there is something not, not normal. You know, at, at the very least, not normal. And probably a little bit cracked. You know, to, to use the term that the hobbits like to use of Bilbo. So, this idea that he call, he goes insane at the end, and he's actually talking to himself, rather than the sword replying to him, is completely believable under the circumstances. Because we have this hint very early on in the Children of Hurin version that something's not right with him already. And then he goes through all these different traumatic experiences, and then finally gets this thing where... He kills Brondir because he thinks Brondir is accusing him unjustly of having wed his own sister and all this stuff. Although, you you kind of get the suspicion, or at least I do, that even as Brondir is saying it, even though he doesn't want to believe it and he's accusing Brondir of lying, you I get the impression that Turin kind of already knows that Brondir is telling the truth. Although he just does not want to believe it, and that's why he just kills him to silence him. And then Mobloom comes along, confirms what Brondir has been saying, and Turin just cannot handle it anymore. He you know, he he thought he had finally settled down, gotten to a point where he had escaped his doom, and then realizes, not only have I brought the dragon here because we, you know, had so much warring going on with the orcs here that you know, I partially helped with, although he had actually set aside the sword and the dragon helm and all that stuff. His sheer valor, you know, kind of helped that. But not only did he kind of bring the dragon on them as he brought it on to Nargothron, after everything is said and done, he not only did that, he managed to marry his own sister and then kill a perfectly innocent, lame person 
and this is another interesting thing about the story because it harkens back to the very beginning where his, you know, one of his friends in his youth was a lame guy who had like chopped his own foot in an accident. So at the very beginning, one of his best friends is a guy who's lame. And then at the very end, a guy that he kills is lame and he kills him out of basically pure spite because he doesn't want to believe what he's saying. So you can just imagine the the psychological trauma that could inflict on a guy, assuming he remembered Sador in the first place. Uh, but anyway, point being, he kills a man who he now knows was innocent and who was telling him the truth about him wedding his own sister and just, you know, put yourself in those shoes. You, you would, it would be very easy to just go insane and lose it completely at that point. And under those circumstances, it's easy to see why he would commit suicide. You know, I mean, it's just like my life has been nothing but screw-ups and I have done the worst screw-ups just recently. If I keep going, it's only going to get worse. I might as well end it. But also, a lot of people have pointed out, Tolkien being a Catholic would have been very against the idea of suicide. Now, I don't think that that's proof in and of itself that Turin's suicide is not really an act of his own free will. I don't think Tolkien, just because he was Catholic, shies away from the idea of his heroes, and we can call Turin a hero, he's called an elf friend by Elrond, because he does a lot of heroic things, right? Um, but just because Tolkien is Catholic doesn't mean he's going to make every single one of his protagonists behave according to, you know, Catholic morality. That I don't think that follows. But you could make the argument that because of his Catholicism and because of things that have developed in the last hundred years or so about you know, clinical depression and how that leads to suicide and how the Catholic Church has kind of modified its original stance, which used to just be, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. There's no getting around it. You, you've committed murder on yourself and you couldn't have repented on it of it before you died. Therefore, you have mortal sin on your soul and you're gone. In more recent times, because of medical, you know, advancements and whatnot, they have kind of modified that to say that you know, if you kill yourself because you're basically clinically depressed and it led you to do it not of your own free will, that doesn't count. So you could make the argument that Tolkien has kind of left himself an out here to say that the reason Turin can still be called an elf friend and considered a hero of the first age is because his suicide was not really due to his own choice. It's because he went loony <laughs> and you know, heard a talking sword, and, I mean, you could imagine that being kind of the case. Now, at the end of the day, do I think Turin actually went insane? I really don't know, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I will say that I, I think I like the story better if we take the suicide as actually being his choice rather than just a momentary fit or even... You know, let's say if he hadn't killed himself, it could have been permanent. But certainly a momentary fit, at least, of insanity. I think the story works better as a tragedy if we assume he actually, of his own free will, takes his life. 
That doesn't mean that I think the story is better if we assume the sword is merely a figment of his imagination or that it's better if it's not a figment of his imagination. Those are two slightly different things. But I guess what I'm trying to say is in in terms of my preferences, in terms of storytelling, I think his suicide is more impactful if it actually is him choosing to take his own life because he's kind of reached this point of like, it's only getting worse. I might as well just end it now rather than, Oh, I've gone crazy and I'm hearing things. Therefore I'm just going to kill myself. You know, I, I don't think the story has as much impact that way. So my, my bias, if you will, leads me in that direction. I prefer the story in that sense. The sword talking itself, I don't necessarily have a preference one way or the other. They're both very intriguing possibilities in their own right. For one thing, you've got a sword that talks. That's interesting. You know, and it's one of those weird little things that Tolkien pops into his stories every once in a while where there's just no explanation, a weird thing happens, and we're just supposed to accept it and move on. Even though the swords never talked before, there's no other examples of talking swords again. It's a one-time deal. But that happens in Tolkien, so it's not surprising that it would happen in this particular case. I mean, there's lots of things in Tolkien where it's just like, weird thing happens with no explanation, and then we just move on. So that's fine. The other possibility that Turin's own conscience is talking to him, and he just interprets it as the sword talking, is equally intriguing, because it goes to the nature of the story itself. Turin's story, unlike any other of Tolkien's stories set in Middle-earth, is very much a psychological tragic drama. It's mostly about Turin's state of mind and how he manages to screw things up by his own choices. Or, if you want to believe, the curse, right? Nevertheless, it is largely about his own psyche. And so, if we want to say at the very end of all this that it's his psyche talking to itself, you know, at the very end here, because he's gone just enough nuts that he can hear his own voice kind of coming back at him through the sword, who he might not have been expecting to talk to him at all, but was just kind of like, you know, you'll, you know, we all do it, I think, for the most part at some point, though many of us probably wouldn't want to admit to it. You know, you'll talk to inanimate objects as if they could hear you, like, you know, when you're frustrated trying to get two things to fit together, you might say, go together, dang it, you know, these kinds of things. You People talk to inanimate objects in ways that don't make any sense if they're inanimate. So to, he could have been doing that, not expecting any kind of reply, but because of his own madness that he had sunk into as a result of Moblin's news, he hears his own conscience talking back to him and interprets it as the sword talking back to him because that's the thing that he just addressed. Now, it's interesting that it's a cold voice that replies... Why would that necessarily be? It's because maybe that's just the way his mind can handle it. You know, if he heard his own voice talking back to him, it wouldn't really make sense to him, and it would just be, you know, it just wouldn't work. Whatever you want to say, but the point is, because of the nature of the story and how it focuses so much on Turin, his thinking and his decisions and his screw-ups, 
it also is a perfectly good ending to the story to have the sword talking be just him going crazy. So, either of those I am perfectly happy to accept. And as a result, because of all the ambiguities, I don't know that we can really say one way or the other that there is a solid answer to the question, did the sword actually talk or was it just Turin? It's an open question in my mind. And I think, again, this goes back to what I said really early on, the story is beautiful in its ambiguities. It gives you so many opportunities to take one of two paths. How do I interpret this passage? It can be this or it can be that. And there's no hard way to prove one, or, one over the other. And at the end of the day, I think this is another one of those. And I think that that's a brilliant thing on Tolkien's part. And it's, like I said earlier, it's one of those things that if you just read the narrative and take it at face value, it's obviously one thing. But if you pay attention to the story and you look at the details and you understand all the other weird ambiguities in the story that are, you know, give you options one way or the other that, you know, it never really settles one side or the other, you know, the author or the narrator, whatever you want to call it. This is another one of those things that you can fit into that ambiguity. And you know what? It works. <laughs> For me, it works. Because like I said, in either case, the story is still interesting, very interesting and intriguing and either route you take, it's like, okay then, that was something. So, that's my thoughts on this topic of did Gurthong really talk back to Turin, or was he just going nuts? You know, at the end of the day, I think it's truly ambiguous, and you can go either route, and I don't have a strong preference for either one, and so I you know, I'm happy not settling and letting it be an ambiguous ending. So, that's where I land. If you have a particular reason why you think it goes one way or the other, put them in the comments. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm sure I've overlooked a few things in the story that could play into this, because it's a long story, especially the Children of, children of Hurin version. So, there's plenty there to analyze and look at. So, you know, if you do have any thoughts on that, leave them in the comments. If you enjoyed the video, give it a thumbs up, share it around. Make sure you click subscribe if you want to catch more of my content and the bell icon to make sure you don't miss anything. You can find my social and support links in the description below. And you can follow me on Twitter for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions every week. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. Thanks to all the channel supporters, especially Elf Friends, PA Brew News, Nathan DeFore, Paul Leone, and Oleg Gregg.